to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Jankowski, and today I'm very excited to be speaking with Chris Sugden. Chris is the managing partner and chairman of the firm's investment committee at Edison Partners, a 32-year-old tech investment firm specializing in fintech, healthcare, IT, and enterprise solutions. Chris leads the firm's fintech practice and has led 32 financings, including 20 new investments, and has served as a director of 21 companies. Prior to Edison, Chris held several roles at startups and began his career at PwC. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Appreciate you having me. So I uh, always love to start by just understanding your background. So could you walk us through your, uh, your professional background? I sure can. Sort of accidental uh, venture capitalist, uh, private equity investor, CPA. I had an accounting degree and did about three or four years in the big four, which frankly, for anyone who's still trying to figure out where they're going, that world is actually a pretty good world to learn. The, the, the language of business, it starts with the financial statements. And I, I frankly think that was a huge benefit to me. Um, and then I went in the startup world. Fortunately, I have a, a, a wife who is very uh, steady income. So she let me take some risks. And I jumped into startup land um, my third year out of undergrad and uh, did my first sort of 10 years in, in business in a couple different startups. One in actually the media space. But the second one, which is relevant for this conversation, was in the payment space. Late 90s, on the way to the internet bubble and build up, paying your bills online was a very novel thing. In fact, Gartner had a chart where it said everyone's going to stop paying by check, you know, basically in a matter of 12 months. And we all know it took almost 10 years. But um, long story short, we're one of the first um, startups around online bill pay, helping both billers uh, get their bills rendered online. So your telco bill, your mortgage bill, your credit card bill, et cetera, which today we all take for granted. And also having at the bank sites, we were powering banks with um, paying all your bills online. Hence some of my curiosity and knowledge around fintech today even. So that was about a four and a half year run, interesting times on the way to the dot-com boom and bust because we raised about 80 million bucks, which today may sound small, but in the late 90s, early 2000s, we were kind of at the, the forefront of raising capital. It seemed easy on the front end of the dot-com bubble, and it was pretty hard on the other side of it. But long story short, grew that company from literally about zero in revenue, a very small amount of revenue, to about 40 million. The company ended up being sold for a couple hundred million. And we basically, there wasn't as much about a pivot as it was about uh, execution, getting better at what we promised the customer. So anyway, I joined Edison after that startup as a VP, much like probably a lot of uh, your kind of colleagues and and, uh, classmates, uh, whether it's the class of 2020 or 2021, sort of what do you do next? You enter as a VP at a firm like at ours. And, you know, I had almost 10 years of experience, didn't have an MBA, but long story short, was inside a startup land. And one piece of advice I give investors or folks who think they want to be investors is go get some real operating experience first, be inside a startup, be inside a, a company kind of having to do it. It's a, it's a tricky and interesting business for young folks because you, you want to come in and sort of set the world on fire early. But if you don't have some practical experience around startup land, it gets to be a tough, how do you add value for the entrepreneur? That's a whole thread we could talk about. But I've been doing this now for 18 years, which is hard to believe. Um, I'm now the managing partner. So I, I actually led the, the sort of succession plan buyout of our founder about seven years ago. So I'm the uh, chief cook and bottle washer and managing partner and leader of fintech, all, all rolled into one at Edison. So that's a quick kind of career background, if you will. That's great. Super interesting. And love that you were part of the, the original fintech wave, even though people didn't think of it as, as fintech back then. Exactly. Um, so tell us, tell us a bit more about Edison. Yeah. What's, the, what's the firm's background, history, uh, and, and what do you guys focus on now? 
Yeah, pretty interesting. Founded in 1986, so one of the very first firms. And one of the theses of the founder, give him a lot of credit, is um, there must be startups on the East Coast, specifically the Mid-Atlantic. He was actually in an early stage firm doing uh, round trip flights to the, to the Valley. And one of the, the, the firm's sort of initial thesis was be a little bit counter to it all has to happen in the Valley. So that was sort of a geographic focus early days. But also not just early stage investing, but there must be businesses with a little bit of revenue bootstrapping, especially on the East Coast where there wasn't as much venture capital available. So back in 86, company, the firm raises a, a, f- a handful of smaller funds, some hundred million, kind of what most venture firms did back then. To today, fast forward now, my tenure, 18 years, but the firm's uh, you know in business 34 years later. We're actively re- uh, investing out of Fund 9. Fund 10 will soon come to market. Fund 9 is about $375 million. We like to describe ourselves as growth equity investors. I say like to because, frankly, growth equity has become a pretty cool thing to be. And I remember raising fund six and folks weren't sure what growth equity was. There was venture and there was buyout and there was nothing in between. And frankly, a lot of consultants, endowments, folks who've managed money a long time in the alternative asset space didn't understand growth equity. We actually coined the term expansion equity and we were ahead of the curve and growth equity became now really a sleeve for asset managers to allocate to. Long story short, we're, our definition of growth equity is businesses with $10 million of, of revenue plus or minus, minus not usually less than $8 million, at least of run rate, and probably up to about $20, 25000000 million before we sort of say the business is kind of beyond where we would reach. We like to own between 15 and 30% of the businesses who are minority investors. We invest between 5 and $30 million. Sounds like a really wide range, but um, on the smaller end, that 5 to $8 million, 5 to $10 million business may only need that small amount of money. Average check size is about $10 million bucks. So think about a $10 million revenue business, $10 million invested, and hopefully owning you know, 10 to 40%. But in the run-up pre-COVID, we might be closer to 15 to 25% ownership because valuations were increasing, which we can talk about. But I'm, I lead FinTech. There's four of us plus some research effort that do fintech here at Edison. It's about 40% of logos, but it's about 50% of dollars. So our fintech investments are a little overweight to the number of companies we back. We also do enterprise, um, so B2B software investing, which we include healthcare IT in that as well. So kind of three specific sectors, but we divide our teams in two, fintech and enterprise and healthcare. That's really helpful background. Thanks for that. And just, just on the firm and, and about Edison, uh, something I thought was interesting was I, I was just doing some background research on you guys and came across Edison Edge. Uh, yeah. Could you tell us a bit more about, about what that is, how that works? Yeah, one of the uh, prouder accomplishments, I'll say, of what I've done. So again, seven years ago, taking over from a founder who built a really interesting franchise, the trend I saw happening was our capital was interesting to entrepreneurs, but our help was even more interesting. And our help, and I use air quotes when I say that, but true value add comes in a lot of shapes and sizes. There's a lot of debate. Early stage is, is, is help really needed. In our stage, a $10 million business trying to get to 100 million bucks, hopefully more, there's a lot that goes into scale and a lot more than a little bit of luck and a little bit of hope, but, but real kind of machining, if you will. The edge is sort of three components. Centers of excellence, which we bring sales and marketing, people, HR organization, and FP&A. And we have people on our team and outsource folks that we bring to bear all this today. And I say today because things could change over time, but today we bring it as part of the value. Your dilution, our help, our edge, if you will. The second is content. So we do, well, when we're in conference mode, we do a CEO summit as well as CFO, CTO, and what we call scale exchange, which is bringing a cross-functional group of people together from our portfolio to learn from each other. That, that ends up being about 10 or 15 
days a year of conferences in person, bringing portfolio together because the cross learning is phenomenal. And then the third leg of that is the Edison Director Network, which actually has been around about 20 years at Edison. We generally ask for two board seats and the second board seat comes from Edison Director Network. So the, the edge is these three pillars. The EDN is something that we, we sort of had before and added these other pieces to it. But the EDN, Edison Director Network, is a phenomenal value add. To me, boards that have more investors than operators on them are bad boards. And as an entrepreneur, as a CEO raising money, you want people who have been there and done it. And the EDN is a group of folks we've backed before, either on boards or CEOs, COOs, CFOs, and heads of sales. That tends to be the, the background of these folks. And we try to line up domain. Sometimes it's about functional expertise. Sometimes about it's maybe a regulatory expertise or some other product market kind of expertise. But long story short, that second board seat isn't a vote or control as much as it is bring someone to the board that actually has a scale. So that's the edge in a nutshell. What we did about, I guess it's about six years ago, I added a CMO from one of my portfolio companies as a partner. So a chief marketing officer, capital M. There's a lot of small M marketing in startups, which we could talk about in a whole different podcast. But I wanted someone who has the marketing experience because sales and marketing is where most of our money is actually used, right? Scale, go to market. Long story short, she was a, a real success. Kelly Ford became a general partner here back in December, actually. And since then, we've added uh, four others. And so we bring a pretty unique blend. And their job is not just edge. We have one general par- partner who's charged just the edge, a guy named Chris Clark. But there are the others play lead investor, but also spend about a third of their time on the edge and, and really helping with operating. So we look at investing as a team sport at Edison, and that's sort of a, a, a mold breaker in the venture private equity landscape. It's such a my deal, my board seat, that, that's sort of not the way you're best successful. I especially think in growth equity where there's more points of view, and frankly, someone's got 20 years investing experience someone who's got 25 years of operating experience coming together to bring that entrepreneur sort of best of both worlds is, is when we see the best fit. So the edge was sort of my creation, bringing operators into a business at the tail end of their career and saying you'll ease your way into investing, not start investing, but really have these three pillars that the CEOs can kind of see for real and test. The other thing we do at the edge is before you take our money, and I say take it, before we compete to win an entrepreneur sort of in, in a deal, you can experience the edge as an entrepreneur that's in our pipeline. So you can come to our CEO summit, you can come to our scale exchange, you can meet our EDN folks, you can engage our centers of excellence people. We see investing in companies as truly a two-way street. Everything starts and ends with sales. And if your listenership doesn't know it, no matter how great your education is, you're always selling, you're always convincing. And um, and so from my perspective, the sales and marketing COE is, is a hell of a learning opportunity also for our entrepreneurs who may think it's just sort of build it and they will come. We all know that's just not, that doesn't happen. So there's a lot of learning that goes into that as well and, and testing. Um, so that, that sales and marketing go to market center of excellence is the biggest investment we make. We are beginning to build out FP&A as well because that, that tends to be a little bit more taken for granted, but the models tend to be pretty weak when you get inside. It's kind of where startups and the assumptions have gone into them, they're the least tested, if you will, around the model. That's great. I love the I love the collaborative approach. I was really interested. I was looking back at the CEO summit. I think you guys had last year in Boston, and was really intrigued by the some of the programming that you put on and the debate that you had on the future of the American dream. It was just really thought provoking stuff. So, so that's great and great that you make it open to folks who are in your pipeline as well. So on that note, actually, for someone listening to this podcast who might be an entrepreneur, might be interested in in a relationship with Edison, 
What are some of the things that you look for when you think about making investment decisions? It's a great question. I think the, the, the thing that baffles me with so much available online is how many entrepreneurs continue to make the mistake of the blind email inbound, which we try to read, but the blind email inbound that isn't relevant to what we do, the life science pitch. I'm like, this is just, you're, you're, you're wasting your time and mine. I hate to say it that way, but I think the first thing is do your homework if you're an entrepreneur, like target the firm, any firm in a way that kind of sees, oh, you've invested in ABC company, or I see your stage looks like it's my stage, or we're an earlier deal. We'd love to get on your radar. Sort of start your pitch with understanding what we do. And that sounds so one way, but I think the point is, if you want to get our attention, understand kind of where we focus our time and also want to be respectful of entrepreneurs' time. I don't want to waste their time. So I think I continue to see this mistake after doing this 18 years more than I'd like to, especially given how open this world is now, the private equity venture landscape. When you think about the way it was very clubby and insular, literally as little as 10 years ago, today with social media presence, with LinkedIn presence, with our own blogs and content that all firms now feel like they have to have, you can figure out what firms do pretty easily, right? And so I, I'm surprised how little homework sometimes entrepreneurs do, which to me just indicates, it's like a cover letter and a resume when you're going to get a job. Have you done your homework? So, so do your homework. The second thing is don't be put off if you're an entrepreneur where we all have biz dev folks. They tend to be younger. They tend to feel more junior, but they have our ear. They sit outside our offices. Their job is to shine in our eyes. So finding a gem, if I send you to a younger person on my fintech team um, that happens to be doing kind of deal triage for us, it's not putting you off. It's not blowing you off. It's really just let them learn and ask a bunch of questions. They will quickly get under my, the, the information under my nose, so to speak, when we're not in kind of Corona COVID land doing Zooms, we're literally walking in and we're very curious deal folks at Edison. And so we kind of think the lifeblood is our deal machinery. Um, so I, I use that because sometimes folks, I think CEOs feel like you're blowing me off. You sent me to a junior person. That's not it. There's, a, there's an element of that's their job. The next one would be quite, quite honestly, the, the lack of getting a great referral in lawyers, accountants, consultants, having a trusted relationship, send me a deal. Edison Director Network, which just talked about another director sending me an investment. Those have a higher likelihood of not only getting my attention, but frankly, the success rate. If someone else is kind of vouched for that, business, there's probably a high likelihood that's worth me spending some cycles on. We've actually seen a pretty strong correlation. Our EDN referrals perform incredibly well. They know what a medicine deal looks like. They've had success with us before. Probably if they're referring a CEO friend or colleague or someone they backed as an angel investor, they know what it's like to work with us. So there is an element of, we tend to be hands-on, but we're not, we don't run the business. What I mean by that is we're here in a pull model. So you pull the edge in if you're an entrepreneur, we don't push in. One, we're not control shareholders, but if we're pushing, there's probably something going on in the business that's not going well. But if you're pulling us in, that, that collaboration is where things are best. So I, I use all of those things to say, it's a two-way street on deal flow. We have to earn the entrepreneur's right to be their partner. So again, salesmanship and collaboration and empathy. But seeing a lot of what goes into that sort of early relationship building, it tells me a lot about how an entrepreneur thinks and how much homework they really do. So the blind spam emails is, you know, I'm sure some have gotten invested in, but you can imagine the odds being pretty low. That's great and really good advice. So we'll love to learn a bit more about some of the investments that you have made. You've made several investments in the fintech space. What are some of the companies that you're especially excited about? Yeah, we've got a couple. And before we sort of got started here, I mentioned them, but um, a couple that feel a little more uh, consumer than what we've never necessarily done historically at Edison. And then a couple others that are traditional B2B investments. But 
couple, one in the um, mobile banking, challenger bank space, a company called Money Lion, which is taking a much more broad approach at kind of rebundling the entire bank as opposed to just being your debit card or your cash advance offering that a few have done. We've gone kind of end to end from credit monitoring to loans, or, or, or so I say credit to cash advance to wealth management investing. We talk about that a little bit. Our thesis has been you got to bring a bundle to the customer. And the, the real issue there is, can the customer understand what they need immediately versus what they'll use over time? That sort of becomes a challenge with, with marketing and getting the consumer's attention. But I can talk more about Moneyline. Yield Street, an alternative asset management platform, but really a wealth management platform with an alternative or credit-based investment opportunity as its underlying sort of asset you would invest in. So again, a wealth management platform with alternatives or credit as the thesis or differentiator, not so much the, the main thing we do, because there are wallets being opened now at Yield Street and people kind of parking money looking for the next opportunity to invest. With Yield Street, what we really liked was multiple different sleeves of investment. There's a bunch of real estate investment sort of platforms, but for, for Yield Street, when we invested a little over a year ago, they already had four live and a fifth one coming on, from litigation finance to real estate to commercial credit to art finance. All these things were already, well, I won't say they were at scale, but we'd see multiple offerings come on, the deals getting sold and performing well, et cetera. That's an interesting COVID issue, so to speak, because as folks kind of scramble for liquidity, where's the demand? When we first invested, the big Yield Street question was, frankly, supply. The demand just overwhelming the supply, because frankly, if there were endless 8, 10, 12% yielding deals with no risk out there in the market, there wouldn't be a reason for me to be in existence. So the question of supply is, is, a, is a question that, that literally flipped on its head, right? Because as the market sort of just shut down, you know, eight, 10 weeks ago, supply goes to the roof because deals weren't getting done in normal channels. And then demand goes, oh my God, I got to seek liquidity. So it's been a really interesting whiplash for 10 weeks at Yield Street. But I think we're starting to see some, you know, calming of the waters, part of that being the market, you know, coming back here um, the last few weeks. But part of it also, folks realize the world's not going to end because it felt like that, you know, in that middle of March time frame, everything dove. That's a couple in the kind of what I'll call relatable uh, brand presence in the consumer landscape, both taking on well-financed competitors, especially money lines. There's a lot of challenger banks out there. We do a deal, which um, we talked a little bit about before, convergence around healthcare IT and fintech, uh, Zealous with a Z. Z-E-L-I-S, started as a claims integrity platform for healthcare and added payments. So seeing convergence around healthcare and fintech is a, is a pretty interesting place. We continue to look, at, look for deals and, and see Zealous uh, perform extremely well. And then our, our, a fourth one, and then I'll stop and see if there's a follow-up question here. ComplySci and GAN Integrity all around the reg tech space. And in fact, Giant Oak is another one. We have three deals, all sort of with the thesis around reg tech, automation, but regulatory scrutiny, needing technology to prove you got an audit trail, to prove you got a continuous monitoring setup, as opposed to Excel spreadsheets or other databases that don't show those kinds of things. The interesting thing, the recent news, the PPP program, one of our companies has gotten significant demand from the SBA and the banks to figure out where the heck the money went. And the, the, the lack of technology, which we all saw to the application process, is prevalent all across the regulatory landscape. And so point being, RegTech is a, is a pretty core thesis for us with three assets, ComplySci, GAN Integrity, and Giant Oak, all in that, in that space. Yeah, that's great. Super interesting companies. A few of them, which I know personally, and, and I'm also excited about. 
So you, you've mentioned in, in describing the companies and earlier on, you mentioned a few different themes. You mentioned, you referenced earlier some of the high valuations in the space. Talking about Moneyline, you, you talked about the unbundling and that rebundling of financial services. I spoke a little bit about the opportunity in RegTech. I'm curious, and this will be a pretty open-ended question, so take it whichever way you feel fit. But I'm curious for just your thoughts on some of the big trends within fintech. And what are some of the big trends that are going to shape the space over the next few years? And layering on top of that, what's the impact of COVID? And that could be a trend in and of itself, but I'm just curious how that, that has changed your thinking from prior to this crisis to what's happening now. Yeah, I think just specific to COVID, what I'll call one of the bright spots or green shoots is the stimulus money has gotten to folks. So we've seen the consumer hang in there longer, which I'll just say, you want to be positive, but you want to be Pollyanna, I will just say so far, we've been pleased with kind of credit performance and a couple of deals that actually have exposure, both in a small business sense and in a consumer sense to this market. As it relates to COVID in general, all the themes around mobility, work from home, frankly, aging in place, what does that mean in terms of payments and logistics and other things around? Those are some of the things we're doing around enterprise and, and fintech together. As it relates to fintech very specifically, I think what we see is another convergence opportunity Supply chain and fintech around payments, around verification of the goods, around something as traditional as bills of lading and shipping documents all becoming sort of integrated. What we see right now is a pretty antiquated air cargo and shipping cargo supply chain capability. We actually invested in a trucking deal as well called Overhaul not all that long ago, and they've got a payments thesis that's beginning to burgeon that they didn't realize. It's sort of like the Zealous where Payments are being done in a very old way in some of these traditional industries. And so I think what we're going to see in the next few years as the supply chain sort of was tested and also we realized technology has not been as prevalent in some of these traditional industries, traditional industries catching up very fast. And so I'll, I, I think for Edison, uh, there'll be some B2B plays where it's actually sort of B2B2B because there's sort of a supply chain of uh, possibly manufacturer to shipper to, to final sort of destination all three having to either pay, receive, and verify, all that sort of fintech meets enterprise software. That's where I'm pretty, I'm pretty interested in. We have a couple of deals in our pipeline literally right now that I think we're, we're, we're going to really lean into. The COVID or corona sort of issues, to me, the big one that's right in front of us all, will you deploy money without meeting teams? Um, that's not fintech specific, but that's sort of investor, alternative investment manager specific around we're used to spending lots and lots of time face-to-face, whether it's breaking bread, whether it's just sitting in a conference room and meeting lots of team members, walking the halls of a company. There's a lot of trust that goes into investing in these companies, especially when you're a minority investor. And I think lots of my friends in the business are all trying to figure it out. I don't think check size actually matters as much as some are saying in the public uh, domain. I think this becomes, uh, you got to have a relationship and you got to be able to collaborate and that's going to be hard to replace. So how long this Zoom world lasts will sort of also dictate, I think the investment pace in Q3 could be down. We've actually seen the pace stay up here the last few weeks, several weeks. That's because deals were already in progress, right? These are companies folks met in October, November, December, January, and are now just being executed. I wouldn't be surprised at all if we see a downturn in number of deals in the July, August, and it won't be because of summer or because we had you know several months of not being able to be out meeting companies. So I think that's just a, a practical question we're all asking ourselves. Yeah, it's hard to replace that in-person interaction. And so, Chris, just on a, on a final note, and I want to be conscious of your time, sure. but can you, and it's on a personal note, can you tell us a bit about what you like to do for, for fun outside of work? 
It's great. Well, what I liked liked is a good question or a good uh, past tense because the last eight weeks we've all been working for things outside of uh, the office to do where work days have become work weekends and work nights. So I'm a workaholic, that's for sure. I got three kids. And so frankly, um, being a sports dad and have kids who play sports, that seemed to be the last 10 years. I'm also a golf nut. I still hold a single digit handicap. But you don't brag about those things with your LPs, of course. But uh, the bottom line is when it's not coaching my kids up in sports, I sneaking around to golf in on occasion is, is my vice. Um, as a washed up athlete, it's one chance I get to compete with myself, but also with others. And I, and I would say sort of a, a personal note, as I look at entrepreneurs, as I look at folks kind of coming up in the business, the competitive streak, however you show it, whether that's a, a music, a business competitive streak, an athletic competitive streak, I'm constantly looking for that sort of um, in folks I, I sort of both do business with, I hire and I back. I think just it's hard to replace that sports gene. There are other places where you get it. Like I said, some folks get it in music or, or other sort of performing arts, but the bottom line is sort of the taking the hill. So I'm, I am looking for that fix and golf and some running, not done a full triathlon, Ironman, but a sprint one I've done before. And that's, those are the kind of things I do, but kids are definitely the big, uh, the big time commitment, number one, but, uh, but golf is a, a true vice. There's no doubt about it. That's great. Well, thanks, Chris. Thanks for joining us. And thanks for sharing all of your, your wisdom and advice and best of luck with Edison. Thanks, Peter. Great to meet you. Take care. Be well.